So the title of the message today is um, Semper Reformanda. So probably not a lot of Latin scholars out there in the, in the congregation, but I know some of you might know. But a little bit of help. Motto of the Marines, anybody know? Semper Fi, Semper Fidelis, okay. So Semper, always. Go ahead, you can yell it out. Faithful, okay. So we got the Semper part, always. What's reformanda mean? Reforming. Always reforming. Always in need of reformation. So ecclesia reformata semper reformanda est. Okay, the church that has been reformed always needs to be reforming. Okay, so I guess that phrase was first coined by some dude named Jodicus von Lodenstein in 1674 in some devotional book. He was a Dutch reformer. The church had been reformed, had sound doctrine, you know, the Reformation out of the corruption of the Roman Catholic Church, etc. So the church had been reformed, had sound doctrine. So this wasn't about changing doctrine and becoming more progressive. Reformed according to the scriptures, then reforming to live faithful to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Okay? So this guy was confer- concerned about personal devotion and piety, like faithfulness to the faith. He knew that the human heart, even the regenerate heart, even when you have a new heart you know, by the power of the gospel, it's always in need of reforming. So spiritual vitality is not something we receive like, you know, like this one-shot kind of download thing at the beginning of our Christian life, and we're good. We are always in need of grace and reformation and change and growth. So he knew how easy it was to fall into a rut of just going through the motions. And he feared that Jesus' warning in Matthew 15 could be true of the church in his day. It can certainly be true of the church in our day. We don't want this to be true of us. This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me and their worship is in vain. That's possible. Okay, so the same concern of whatever that guy's name was, um, Jodicus, Jodicus, Jodicus von Lodenstein, um, is also at the heart of this passage this morning. So Nehemiah 13, um, Steve just read the passage for us, and with it we draw to a close our study through the book of Nehemiah. So a little bit of review if you're with us for the first time this morning or it's been a couple weeks because we focused on Sanctity of Human Life Sunday last week. So a little bit of review, the book of Nehemiah, and then we'll dive in. So Nehemiah 1, now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year as I, Nehemiah, was in Susa the citadel, capital of Persia, that... Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. It's like 900 miles away. Okay, Jerusalem from Susa. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So at this news, he weeps. He mourns for days. He cries out to the Lord with confession of sin. He's pleading with the Lord that the Lord will intervene and use him to turn the situation around. And the Lord did answer miraculously. So the Persian king Artaxerxes, 
not only let Nehemiah, his, you know, trusted right-hand man, cupbearer guy, not, let, not only let him go, and this was for years it ended up, but gave him his full support and protection, and he author, authorized provision and supplies to be given for the rebuilding of the wall 900 miles away in Jerusalem. So Nehemiah comes back despite lots of obstacles and opposition from local threats, you know, little... Um, kingdoms nearby. They didn't like the fact that the city was being rebuilt and they tried to squash it multiple times. And there were these two ringleaders, Sanballat and Tobiah. But despite all those threats, the people had a mind to work. They completed the wall in a record time, 52 days. Another miracle of God's doing, enabling the people to work and persevere and protecting them from threats. So we read Nehemiah 6, 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th 25th day of the month Elul and 52 days and when all our enemies heard of it all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. So the work of Nehemiah doesn't end though at the end of chapter 6 with the completion of the wall. Really that's just the beginning. He knew that the people of God needed to be reformed and to be rebuilt if the city of God was going to be rebuilt and established and flourish. So chapters 1 to 6 focuses on the rebuilding of the wall. Chapters 8 to 10 then focus on the rebuilding of the people, the reformation and rebuilding of the people. So they read God's word. They respond to God's word. They confess their sins. They renew their commitment to keep the covenant. And at the end of chapter 10, the people promise in verse 39, we will not neglect the house of our God. We will be faithful to worship God. He will be central in our lives. And so a plan is put into place to repopulate the city because most people were living in the outlying areas and a ghost town is not going to really do it if, if the city of God is going to be rebuilt. And so chapters 11 and 12 comes come to the climax of the letter. There's a dedication of the wall and the celebration of the people at the end of chapter 12. And everything seems to be going according to plan. And this is just this great story with a happy ending and the credits roll. Let's go to lunch. Well, unfortunately, that's not how it ends. Nehemiah actually went back to Susa. I mean, he had kind of set things in order, but he went back to Susa to resume his duties. You know, the cupbearer of the king, and while he was away, things regressed considerably. So that's where we pick up in chapter 13. And instead of beginning in verse 1, we're going to actually begin in verse 4. We'll circle back to pick up the first few verses later on. So five points this morning. First point is cleaning house, verses 4 to 13. Now before this, it refers to the situation in 1 to 3, which we'll look at in a bit, like I mentioned. Before this, Eliashib the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah. Uh-oh. This priest is related to an enemy of God, the guy that was one of the two guys that were given all this trouble and all these threats at the rebuilding of the wall. So Eliashib prepared for Tobiah a large chamber. It's like, as part of the temple, 
prepared for to buy a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levite singers and gatekeepers and the contributions for the priests. So we can't be totally sure if this is the Eliashib, the high priest who's mentioned throughout the book, or a priest with the same name. Either way, it's bad news. Okay, and either way, even if this is, you know, like a secondary Eliashib, the priest, the high priest would have known about this and he didn't do anything. So again, you remember who this Tobiah was. Just let me hit a couple of passages. They'll be up on the screen here. Remember how bad this dude is. Nehemiah 2.10, but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, that Nehemiah had come back to rebuild the wall and lead the people in this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. (laughs) So there you go. That's Tobiah's heart. I hate it when people are pursuing, seeking the welfare of the people of Israel. And then you're going to welcome them in and make an apartment for them on the side of the temple complex. Or 219, but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Another threat. And then down in Nehemiah 4, Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and said, yeah, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he'll break down their stone wall. Again, just mocking them. So they plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem later on in chapter 4, caused confusion in it. So this is the guy that, like, numerous times tries to derail, threaten Nehemiah. And here, to remove the holy things so that this joker can move in. It's just flat-out folly. It's betrayal. So look at verse 6. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. Nehemiah wasn't there. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. So we're not exactly sure how long Nehemiah was gone, but we know that Artaxerxes began to rule in 465 BC. Okay? So Nehemiah 2.1, the year that Nehemiah returned to Jerusalem was the 20th year of Artaxerxes. So around 445 BC. You know, it works backwards when you're talking about BC years, right? Then the 32nd year would be around 433 BC. <clears throat> so verse 6 continues. After some time, so, you know, could have been a few years, three or four years, something like that. He probably returned in 430 or 429 BC, something like that. You don't just go back and forth between Susa and Jerusalem like, you know, daily commute. It's like 900 miles. And this is before, obviously, the kind of transportation that we would have. So it takes a while. So after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, and I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Nehemiah's reaction here reminds you of anybody? Listen to John 2. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple 
He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. It was supposed to be a house of prayer, right? And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So Nehemiah has that same heartbeat. Zeal for God's house consumes him and he responds to cleanse the temple area from this defilement. So Tobiah was an Ammonite and an enemy of the people of God. So this is defilement, it's desecration. I mean, talk about giving the enemy a foothold. So holy things were removed in order to make room for an evil, idolatrous influence. So, okay, is there any kind of contemporary parallel for us? I mean, there's maybe not an exact one-to-one, but there are corporate ways in which this can take place in the church when people are given power who are not qualified to wield that power, right? So oftentimes it happens in churches. Maybe you've been in a church like this in the past. People that give a lot of money end up buying shares of control. And I'm grateful that those dynamics are not present here at Bethel. So just for what it's worth, even just as a matter of policy, like I don't know who gives what. Actually, none of the elders do. We see reports, but we don't see who because we wouldn't want. I mean, there's the whole thing, Matthew 6, you know, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is, is giving. But also, there's a sense in which we, we wouldn't want that to influence decisions, right? We want to be, like, impartial. So we want to guard against anything like that ever taking root here. I can't also help but think of the Christmas service at First Baptist Dallas just this past December where Pastor Robert Jeffress gave former President Trump 12 minutes to speak. So Jeffress' sermon was still largely about the birth of Jesus and Christian salvation, you know, from their sin through Christ, which the temple, I'm sure, back when Tobiah was in that room, was still, you know, worship of Yahweh, right? But there are problems with any church giving someone like Donald Trump or someone like Joe Biden, by the way, 12 minutes to speak in the worship service in the church of Jesus Christ. Have you ever heard it said when politics and religion mix, what do you get? Politics. If for some reason that bothers you, happy to talk to you later to explain more of why I would say that. So despite the progress under Nehemiah's leadership during his years in Jerusalem, and despite the promise the people had made back in 1039, remember we will not neglect the temple of the Lord, the house of our God. Nehemiah finds that the temple has been neglected. Look at verse 10. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So the Levites couldn't continue their ministry if the support wasn't given. 
And maybe perhaps the goodwill toward them had also run out. I mean, it says they fled. So Nehemiah confronted, rebukes the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padeah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zachor, son of Mattaniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. So Nehemiah reorders the worship of Yahweh. So he cleanses out the evil influences and reorders things as they ought to be for the worship of Yahweh. So again, not exact one-to-one, but there are some parallels here for us. How often do we need to clean house? How often do we need reordered lives for the sake of worshiping God? How often do we need to rid our lives of idolatrous influences? How often do we need to reorder our priorities and our loves and our worship? So the reordering can take the form of our time, our money, our concern. So listen, just as it's so easy to slowly get into bad habits with the way that we eat, the way that we drink, the way that we spend, the way that we have like work-life balance or work-life imbalance, I mean, how many times has it happened where you're like, oh, I need to go on a diet. I feel like garbage. Oh, I, like our spending's out of control. We need to get back to the budget. Oh. We can also get into bad habits where we peripheralize God and other things take the center place. I don't even know if peripheralize. I think I said that on Wednesday night too. Is that a word? Somebody tell me. Um, Anyway, you know what I mean. So sometimes we need to stop and ask the Spirit of God to expose and help us think through and evaluate and what changes do we need to make relative to our heart, like that God would have the first place and he would order everything accordingly, that we wouldn't put second things first and first things second or third or worse. And also, are there bad habits relative to our support of ministry and mission? Like, do we need to take time to evaluate and make changes? So if you haven't done that in a while, if it's not a normal part of kind of how you do life, take some time this afternoon. Talk and pray it through with your community group. Grab a brother or sister and meet up for coffee and say, I, I need some help here. I feel like everything's kind of disordered or I need some help just making sure that my priorities are in the proper place. So listen to this. Just in our membership covenant, there's some examples here. We will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We will walk together in brotherly love as becomes disciples of Jesus Christ, exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other, and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require. We will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, but consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. We will endeavor to bring up the coming generations in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Deuteronomy 6, living it out as parents, and not just parents, because if you're serving in children's ministry, you're helping parents to live this out. 
And then last one there I'll hit on. This isn't all of our membership covenant, but several, just five key points. We will work together for the continuance of a faithful evangelical ministry in the church as we sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines. We will contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel through all nations. So are these priorities priorities in your life, in my life? Or have they gotten squeezed out by other concerns? Or are you being a maximalist in your work life and a minimalist in your ministry life? Or a maximalist in your comfort zone orientation and a minimalist in your ministry loving others orientation? So are we seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Or is God just getting the leftovers? It's actually what Nehemiah found when he returned. Point number two, keeping the Sabbath holy. Look at verse 15. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath. That, wait, what? That's just like the nations, just like the pagan nations. Bringing in heaps of grain, loading them on donkeys, wine, grapes, figs, all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians, those are people from Tyre, you know, Tyre and Sidon. Um, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you're doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way and did not God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the door should be shut. So he put some practical measures in place to change these practices. Commanded the doors be shut, gave orders that they would not be opened after the Sabbath. I stationed some of my servants and, and so forth. So people chafed. Like, you know, the Sabbath is not exactly the same for us today, okay? But people chafed at Sabbath regulations before the exile. They're like, when will the Sabbath be over that we may offer wheat for sale? I mean, there's six other days. It's actually part of why the people of God went off into exile, why they were judged. In Jeremiah 17, God tells Jeremiah, preach to the people. And he says this, if you listen to me, declares the Lord, you'll be established and blessed. But if you do not listen to me to keep the Sabbath day holy and not to bear a burden and enter by the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in its gates and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem and shall not be quenched. And that's what happened. So here again, they're chafing at that regulation, ignoring it, and operating just like the pagan nations as if they don't have a father who knows what they need. See, the Sabbath is a trust issue. It's actually a gift. I'm going to take care of you. Seek first my kingdom. Trust me. You got six days a week to work. Take a day as a gift from me, your heavenly father, to you for your soul's rest and to focus on your relationship with me and worship together with my people. So in a very real sense, the application of this for us today, a similar parallel, is Matthew 6. Therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink, or about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food? Remember, first things first. And the body more than clothing? And then down later on when Jesus, you know, gives the illustration of, you know, the birds and the 
flowers and God takes care of that, how much more valuable are you than they? Therefore, do not be anxious, verse 31, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, the nations, seek after all these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and he'll take care of you. So as we look at chapter 13, we're seeing the compromises of the people, kind of above, above ground weeds, and the idolatry and the disordered loves and priorities underneath. And Nehemiah is addressing both. And he continues to do so in verses 23 to 28. So this point number three, idle threats are not idle threats. Look at verse 23. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. <laughs> we will talk about that in a minute. And I made them take oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, son of Eliashib the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. So this sounds pretty harsh to us, you know, like pulling your hair out. Like, come on, what? Listen, we need to remember that the Ammonites worshipped Moloch, okay, or Milcom, sometimes referred by that name. Child sacrifice, like as in burning your child to death as a sacrifice, was common. Old Testament scholar Edwin Yamauchi says this, extensive archaeological evidence of the burning of thousands of young children has come to light in the Phoenician colony of Carthage. And the Moabites worshipped Chemosh. And also the practice of child sacrifice was common with this so-called God. So do you see how important it is not to intermarry with pagans? This is not about interracial marriage. Not at all. It's not a, this isn't a racial issue. This is a spiritual issue of not being unequally yoked. How did that go for King Solomon? He was supposedly the wisest man. And yet his heart was pulled away by his idolatrous allegiances. So this is not a matter of nationalistic or even linguistic pride and elitism, okay? This is preservation of God's word and knowledge of God and his faithfulness to the next generation. So this would have nothing to do with, you know, is this about America and immigrants and not speaking English in schools and, you know, no, 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 no. This is about being cut off from the Torah. Pagan mothers would teach their children the only language they knew. And pretty soon, nobody would have access to the Bible anymore. Do you see how dangerous that would be? So Derek Kidner, Old Testament scholar, helps us understand the dangers. I think he summarizes it well. He says, much is made in the Old Testament of the immediate disloyalties inherent in mixed marriages, spiritually mixed. 
But Nehemiah was struck by another aspect barely touched on in the law of the prophets, namely the corruption of the next generation, the babble of languages among the children, like is spoken of here in the passage. <clears throat> they couldn't speak Hebrew anymore. Was not only a symptom, but a threat. It meant a steady erosion of Israelite identity at the level of all thinking and expression and a loss of access to the word of God which, could, which would eventually paganize them. A single generation's compromise could undo the work of centuries. Do you see how this is dangerous? And so Nehemiah is acting decisively. <clears throat> so as for the cursing, the beating, and the hair pulling, remember this is a civil leader in the midst of a theocracy, right? So where religion and, you know, political power, religious fidelity, political authority overlapped. It's a different part of the story, right? National Israel. So though we might at times feel like employing some of Nehemiah's methods, you know, with certain people, this is not authorization to pull anybody's hair or threaten to give some sinner a beatdown. Um, Nehemiah is bringing a case against these folks and he's doing it publicly, okay? Did you see there even the statement of an oath? So he made them take an oath. This is a public addressing of public, very public, sadly, sin. So this practice of like pulling the hair was most likely of the beard, okay? You can... Read of it in 2 Samuel 10 or Isaiah 50. So it was misused at times, you know, by enemy nations. They would shame um, another nation by, you know, pulling out the beard and doing some other things that were interesting if you know about that passage, but that's another time. Um, so it could be done in a, in a cruel way of shaming, but it could also be part of a civil and religious punishment where public shame was brought on someone for publicly shameful behavior. And so in this way, the punishment was just as public as the wrong and it served as like a warning, like a cautionary tale for everybody to see because it would take a while for your beard to grow back. So this is not punishment we're authorized to do. Certainly not anything we'll employ. But that being said, idle threats, idolatrous threats are not to be handled lightly, gently, we should not deal gently with idols. No kid gloves. Okay, we can't pull our punches. Think of Jesus' words when it comes to money. You can't serve God in money. Think of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount when it comes to lust. Be ruthless. Gouge out an eye. Cut off a hand. Okay, Adam, I need you to come up here. So it's a little illustration. I hope this works because Adam's like really strong and he's like the CrossFit dude and I am not. I know that's surprising to you all. I have gone a couple times. Um, probably doesn't show. But you know, there's the old stand on the chair lesson. Right? You know this thing. So don't ruin it, okay? No, you can try for real. So can you stand on the chair? So is it easier for Adam to pull me up onto this chair if I'm like, what am I? Am I the pagan? Or is it easier for me to pull him down? Okay? So 
Okay, ready? We're, I hope this doesn't like get ruined because he's so strong. He might throw me up on, and I might like land on the top of the uh, the screen. Okay, ready? So it's, it's a little mono y mono here. Okay, you ready? Can you handle it? All right. Okay, here it goes. Oh man! Did, did you go easy on me? All right. Okay. Point point made. Thank you, Adam. So I'm not going to stand on the floor and try to do anything with Adam. How much do you weigh, Adam? 200. Okay, and that's probably all muscle. I'm like 180, not all muscle. Um, so the point is, hey, Solomon did not lift his wives up, and they all worshiped Yahweh. They drug him down. This was dangerous threat. So Nehemiah did the right thing to be zealous and to act decisively. And we need to too. We can't coddle or nurse our sin and our idolatry. Remember the end of the book of 1 John? Like it's all about loving God and loving brother and sister. And, and then all of a sudden, it's almost like out of the blue, the last verse in the book, 521, little children, keep yourself from idols. It's so dangerous. Like, guard your heart. So, Nehemiah, watching him chase the threat, like, out of, out of town, you know, like, that's a picture of how we ought to deal with idolatrous influence in our own hearts. And our hearts are idol factories, aren't they? So we need to be on guard. We're, like, spring-loaded to, like, incline toward everything else as the first thing in our lives rather than God, I saw this video this past week. A guy who <clears throat> had to chase a bear. He had like one of those ring video cameras. And, you know, he's coming out on the porch because his two dogs are on the porch. And this bear comes through the porch door trying to eat his little dog. And he like went after this bear and like pushed him out the door and then slid the, the um, picnic table that was in the porch like across the thing and like, ah, oh, bear just attacked. And they ran back inside like with the dogs. There you go. Like idolatry is like that bear coming to eat and destroy and kill. So if that's our own hearts or our brothers and sisters, we need to sometimes confront, act decisively for the good of the church. So it's fitting. After this, at some point, 13, one to three takes place. So in the the kind of order of things, 13, 1 to 3 took place after all the stuff we've just been talking about. So look at what took place after. On that day, they read from the book of Moses, it's 13, 1 to 3, in the hearing of the people, and it was found, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them, yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent, so all the idolaters. So this isn't the first time. It's like a roller coaster ride here through Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra called the people to separate from these idolatrous alliances, Ezra 9 and 10. Ezra's return was like 458 BC. So again, not a matter of banning interracial marriage. It's about spiritual intermarriage, unequally yoked. If Solomon in all of his wisdom can't handle it, we can't either Nehemiah called them to separate in chapter 9. 
You know, his return was like 445 BC. There was a separation and a commitment not to intermarry, chapter 10. And then here we are, chapter 13, regression. But then here in 1 to 3, doing the right thing again. So this roller coaster ride, kind of discouraging, isn't it? Like disheartening. <clears throat> what were the three things that the people committed to back in chapter 10? when reformation and revival was taking place. No intermarriage, spiritual, you know, unequally yoked. Keep the Sabbath holy. Don't neglect the temple service. Those were the three things. What are the three things that Nehemiah has to come back and clean up, clean house? Intermarriage, Sabbath breaking, temple service, neglect. It's kind of discouraging, isn't it? Like the very three things that the people promised they wouldn't, you know, do. Discouraging, but hold on. It's actually encouraging if you think about it. God was intervening. Like, what does it mean that Nehemiah went back almost 900 or 1,000 miles and came into town and got to work again? This is God not giving up on his people. This was mercy. He's intervening and calling them to repentance, not leaving them to themselves. He's leading them back to faithfulness in his merciful faithfulness. So it's encouraging. Listen, if, if all the stories in the Bible were like this perfect linear line upward, you know, people get converted and then they just, you know, improve like all the way and just whew, right into glory. Like, yeah, that's what it's like to be a Christian. How would you feel about that? I don't know about you, but I'd be kind of like, well, I guess I don't qualify. God must be done with me. I might as well throw in a towel. Because I'm too much of a yo-yo. I've got too much sin. Life of faith, the life of the church, so individually and corporately, is not always that linear path. In fact, it's rarely that linear path. Always trending upward, you know, all the way to glory. No, it's not true of saints in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, you know, like, it's not true of them. It was like, this, right, to them? So here's the point. We will need revival and reformation regularly. That's encouraging that God sent Nehemiah back. And he'll continue to be faithful to us to draw us back. And listen, confrontation and repentance and change and reordering our lives until the day we die is going to be normal. We're going to need it. We should welcome it, not resist it. Don't do the Heisman to the Holy Spirit. So semper reformanda. Our lives are always in need of reforming. The church is going to always be under construction until the day we die, until the day Jesus comes back. If it's a hospital for sinners, of course it's going to be messy here. And there's going to be calls for cleanup in aisle five over and over and over again until Jesus comes back. So we should identify with the people in the book of Nehemiah and their roller coaster trajectory and learn from it and God's faithfulness to them, but we can also identify with Nehemiah. Point number four, remember me. So Nehemiah gave much of his life to the rebuilding and the reformation of the people of God. He certainly accomplished a lot. But you can imagine that he also felt like he had wasted his efforts and spun his wheels. 
I mean, here's the three things. Do all this work, and it's exact stuff you're doing here when I get back. He, though, is mature enough to know that God is the rewarder of those who trust him. Hebrews 11.6. Even if it seems our labor has been in vain, it's not in vain. It's never in vain. So did you notice all those remember me prayers? Look at verse 14. Remember me, O God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I've done for the house of my God and for his service. And this is not good deeds to get into heaven. This is not climbing a ladder to heaven. Not at all. Nehemiah is trusting in God. He knows his mercy and grace. He's only in relationship with God because of the covenant of grace. Given to Abraham, regulated by Moses, etc. Okay? But you're, you're the one that keeps score. Even if on earth it, it feels like all oh, this labor and what do I have to show for it? Would you just not forget or pass over these things? I'm trusting you. You're the one that keeps the books. You're the one that is the rewarder of those who trust in you. Verse 22, remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me or have mercy, compassion, show pity according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Remember them, O my God, because they've desecrated the priesthood, covenant, the priesthood, Levites, and then down in verse 31, remember me, O my God, for my good. Need to wrap things up here. So he doesn't say, remember all the building projects I accomplished. He says, remember the purifying work for the people, that worship was primary. He's praying, deal, deal justly. Yeah, deal with those enemies, but please remember what, what I've done. So listen to these texts. I, th I think as we consider his prayer to God, to remember him. Listen to these texts. Let them just minister to you. 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10. We make it our aim to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Right? That's our aim because we're going to stand before the judgment seat. Hebrews 6, 10. Listen to this. Isn't this encouraging? God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Galatians 6, 9. Maybe you need to hear this this morning. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And then 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Derek Kidner says, to hear God's well done is the most innocent and most cleansing of ambitions. Further, the, the plea springs from humility, not self-importance, for it's an appeal for help. God's remembering always implies his intervention, not merely his recollection or recognition. Nehemiah is committing himself and his cause to the only safe hands. God's hands are safe. Our lives are in his hands. Praise God that that's true. What good, gracious, merciful hands they are. So we're gonna close here with a quick look back at the beginning of the chapter. Um, sorry, I am going longer than I anticipated here. But do you see there in verse 2, despite the fact that, you know, these Moabites, Balak, tried to get Balaam to curse the people of God, but God turned the curse into a blessing. 
You can read about that in Numbers 22 to 25. But isn't that God's MO? Like, isn't that the God that we deal with? Isn't that how he works? He turns a curse into a blessing. So we deserve the curse, you know, for our sin, Adam and Eve. But he blessed Adam and Eve, sacrifice an animal, cover them, give them the promise. One day, serpent's head is going to get crushed. Abraham calls him out. I'm going to bless you and make you a blessing. So despite all this sin, even the Moabites, wicked curse on the Israelites, Ruth was a Moabitess. And she turned from her pagan ways and trusted Yahweh. And she was welcomed into the people of God. And her name is in the genealogy of Jesus. He took a curse and turned it into a blessing. So listen, we all deserve the opposite of blessing. We deserve the curse for our sin. You know the, the passage in Numbers 6, that, that prayer of blessing, the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine on you and be gracious to you, lift up his countenance upon you, give you his peace. We deserve the opposite of that. And so Jesus, because this is God's MO, this is his heart, Jesus actually took the curse, the forsakenness, the rejection, the wrath, the judgment that we deserve. Why? So that anyone who trusts in him will be blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. So we worship the God who turns curse into blessing. Isn't that encouraging? So as the musicians come up to sing the final song, we're going to sing Sovereign Over Us again. That is true for salvation. It's also true for suffering. So Joe, in his talk this morning, Joe Healy, um, if you missed that, you gotta, we'll, we'll send the link around so you can see um, some of the stuff that happened this morning. But he said chronic pain in his life has led to chronic dependence. That's awesome. It's like a curse, chronic pain. Unless it leads you to chronically depend on the Lord and your weakness becomes strength and a curse is turned into a blessing. So that's the God that we worship. The God that we know, the God that we love is the one who turns a curse into a blessing. Let's bless his name together.